0: We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, when I first decided to preach the gospel of John, I was very excited about a few passages. One of them was John 3, and we're here this morning. Can't wait to share with you uh, just the rich and beautiful doctrinal truth that we have here uh, in this story in which Jesus interacts with Nicodemus. I have found that there are few things more discouraging than New research on American Christianity. It never seems to have really good news. I read some research recently that reminded me of a few things. It said 63% of Americans call themselves Christians, believe they're Christians. The next question after that in the survey was Do you consider yourself religious? Meaning you do religious things. You go to church, you pray, you read the Bible. Only 41% said they were very religious which means there's 22% of Christians that don't find themselves religious. 33% said they attend a church about once a month, which means there's 32% of Christians that don't go to church. 24% of all of those people that said they were Christians said they were evangelical Christians. And so immediately following that was four extremely basic questions like, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Do you believe Jesus is the way to salvation? Very basic questions. Only 45% of those who said they're evangelicals agreed with those statements. Now that's a problem. Only 29% said they were born again, which means 34% of the people that said they're Christians says, yes, I'm a Christian, but not the born again type. That's a mess. Like every single one of those statistics are an absolute mess. And I am sure there are all kinds of sociological and spiritual implications to that. But I think about something much simpler. What I see is a lot of people who think there's something that they're not. A lot of people who are convinced that they are something, but it would appear, even by many of their own answers, that they're not what they think they are. If 63% of America says they're Christians, I think there's a lot of people we know that may not be exactly what they think they are. Now, one of the things that makes America a challenging mission field, and I would say, I know we think about the unreached peoples and those that are very difficult to get to, that's a different challenge. The challenge we have is not that people are difficult to get to, But there is a challenge with reaching Americans. And the challenge is this. For most Americans, before we can convince them of what they need, we have to convince them that they don't have what they need. So a lot of our evangelism is just about helping someone see that they're not what they think they are. And sometimes that's really hard to discern. And sometimes it's really hard to know. But at some point, you kind of have to get people to be unchristian in that sense to help them really know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's challenging. But that's, that's not a new reality. This is, this is really new statistics on a very, very old reality, and it's exactly the reality that Jesus faced in John chapter three. Jesus encountered a man who thought he had something, he was convinced he had something that Jesus knew he did not have. And Jesus also knew that he couldn't receive what he needed until he learned that he didn't have what he needed. So Jesus had to convince him that he didn't have what he thought he had in order to present to him the simple truth of what he really needed. This is an incredible story. It's an incredible conversation which gives us really incredible insight into what it really means to be saved, what it really means to be a Christian, what is the true nature of salvation. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to walk through this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, and then at the end, I want to give you one truth that I believe summarizes exactly what Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand and what Jesus wants us to leave understanding as well. Let me read, starting in John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Listen to this. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Eternal life. We introduced at the very beginning to a man named Nicodemus. He's a man of the Pharisees, but there's something strange about this introduction. When you're trying to understand a text of scripture, you have to notice, is there something here that doesn't seem to fit? Is there something here that's not normal when someone is being introduced? And the truth is, there is something here, twice, that's not normal. It's not the way that John would normally speak, and so that shows us there's something to it. It's just the fact that it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus. That's just not a normal introduction, You say, well, what does that mean? Is there any significance in that word? Well, there absolutely is. And one of the things we have to do to understand the story is to figure out Nicodemus. What is his motives? Why is he coming? What does he really want? And there's three or four clues that help us to understand what Nicodemus is really doing as he comes to Jesus. The first one is in that word man. Now look right above that at the end of chapter 2 in verse 23. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so he stop and say, praise the Lord, that's awesome. Like, that's exactly what we want. John wrote so that people would believe. Jesus came so that people would believe. And so he say, praise God. Jesus did signs. He did the water into wine. He's overturned the tables in the temple. And apparently people saw that and they believed. Mission is being accomplished. Praise the Lord, stuff's happening. But Jesus didn't see it that way. You see, oftentimes we would meet someone, maybe some of the 63% that say they're Christians, and we might wonder. They don't go to church. They don't think about the Lord. They never talk about Jesus. There's just all these things that would make us think maybe they don't know the Lord. But we don't know for sure, and sometimes it's really hard for us to discern that. We can give evidence to the fruit of the Spirit and hunger and thirst for righteousness, signs of life, but we never really know. But here's the thing, Jesus always knows. Jesus is omniscient. He knows exactly what's going on in every one of your hearts. He knows if you're authentic or not. And he knew that there was something wrong with these people. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, those who believed, because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus looked beyond the, the fact that these people were fascinated with Jesus, intrigued by Jesus, interested in Jesus, and maybe even for a little while begin to follow Jesus because we're going to see in, later in John how many that followed went away, as he said, hard sayings. But Jesus knew they were going to go away before they went away because Jesus knew what was in man. And he said that although they might have had some form of belief, it was not saving belief. They did not truly believe in him. And so he did not fully give himself to them because they had not fully given themselves to him. It is an incredible statement about the omniscience of Jesus, of knowing exactly what is in the heart of every man. Now, here's what's interesting. It says in verse 25, he needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. Now, that chapter division messes it up, but it shouldn't because it wasn't originally there. And what he's saying to us, he's introducing Nicodemus to us primarily as one of these men who was not authentic in their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as one of those men that Jesus sees right through and knows exactly what's going on in his heart, So we already know that he's one of those. He's one of that group. Jesus knows these kind of people. We're also introduced to the fact that he is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, which makes him not only religiously prominent, but socially prominent. He was highly religious and highly prominent. He was a part of a very, very small elite group of people who had ruling power over the Jews. That's really important. He was wealthy, he was powerful, he was influential. Now, the reason that's important coming out of chapter two is it reminds us that Nicodemus is a man deeply rooted in the system that Jesus is trying to dismantle. Remember this? They had created this religious system that looked nothing like God. It did not reflect the heart of God. And one of the things that Jesus was coming to do is to dismantle something because sometimes in order to build something, you have to dismantle something first. And so Jesus had come to dismantle this religious system and to bring something new. Well, the fact that he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews shows us that he is deeply ingrained in that very system that Jesus is trying to take down. Remember the last chapter, last week's sermon, where Jesus walks into the temple and he is filled with the zeal of the Lord and he makes a whip and he overturns the tables and drives out the people and pours out the money and looses the animals? Do you remember that? It needs to be clear to us that Nicodemus was not just a man who participated in what was going on at the temple. He helped plan what was going on in the temple. Like when the decisions were being made, should we take the money changers outside of the courts and bring them into the courts? And should we charge a little interest rate to exploit the poor people? Nicodemus was a part of all of that. And so the fact that he was a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Jews, shows that he is deeply rooted in the system. And he comes to us, in a sense, in chapter 3, as a symbol of all of this stuff that Jesus is fighting against. But There's another clue. It says that he came to Jesus by night, in verse 2. That's not just a reference to the time in which he came. We know that because every single time in the Gospel of John, darkness or night is used. It is always used in a negative sense. So why would John highlight that he came at night? Some say, well, it's because he was coming secretly. I don't think that's the point he's trying to make because that's not what night means to Gospel of John. It means that he is walking in religious darkness, in spiritual darkness. He does not know the Lord. The light of the Gospel is not shining in his heart. He is one of those in John 1, 5, that it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What it means is this, Jesus walked into a religious system that hated him, and he hated the system, and the more that he tried to dismantle the system, the more they decided to kill him. Why? Because it threatened everything they had built their life upon, and Nicodemus was right in the middle of that. And so Jesus comes as the light into the darkness, and it says the darkness did not overcome him, meaning this, that the darkness of the religious system was constantly trying to destroy Jesus. So every time the light was shining, they would try to bring darkness on it, and they did not win. They could not overcome Jesus, but they tried. And Nicodemus is one of those, deeply rooted in that spiritual darkness that is trying to do anything he can to destroy the light of Jesus Christ. There's another clue. Says, Rabbi, he says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So how do we take that? Well, we look at those words and the way in which he's saying and was that a normal way for him to say it? And what does the text reveal to us? And when we take everything else that we've seen about Nicodemus and the specific entrance into his life by showing us he was one of these men, then we have to know from that statement that he's not really being sincere. He wasn't genuinely wanting to know the Lord. It was insincere flattery. It was a little bit of passive aggressive. It was a a little jab or a little bit of mockery. Well, Jesus, you say that you're a teacher of Israel and certainly we all know this, but he was not sincere in that. Truth was, he was being a bit snarky and challenging and combative. And when he says, we know that you say you're this, we know that you're this, it, it may not be that he's coming on behalf of the religious leaders who sent him. We don't know that, and it doesn't really matter. What we do know is this. He does represent that system. Whether he's coming as an official representative or not, John wants to make sure we understand by saying he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, he represents the very system that will spend the rest of the next three years trying to kill Jesus. He represents all of that. And so he comes and and makes these statements Because behind the veil of all of his prominence and power and wealth is a deeply broken man who is deeply rooted in a deeply broken system. He's a deeply broken man who is deeply rooted in a deeply broken system. And Jesus knows all of that. Did you notice in verse 3 it says this, and Jesus answered him, which is strange because the end of chapter two did not end with a question mark. Do you notice that? Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He made a statement. But we already know from chapter two, verse 25, that Jesus doesn't need anyone to tell him what's in man because he knows what's in man. And so the omniscient of Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking and exactly what he's feeling and exactly what he needs to hear. And so Jesus does not answer his question. He goes directly to his heart. He goes directly to his thoughts. And then Jesus here for the first time, first of three times, will say, truly, truly. Every time it will mean something like this. Listen to me if you wanna know the truth. You don't know the truth, I know the truth. And if you wanna hear the truth, listen to me. Truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth. What I'm saying is the truth, listen to me. And then he says this just out of the blue. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, believing he was deeply rooted in his understanding of the kingdom of God, would have absolutely believed that he was part of the kingdom of God. And what Jesus says to him, knowing his identity was in the fact that he was a Jew and a part of God's kingdom and will be a part of God's coming kingdom, he says this, Nicodemus, you will never actually see the kingdom when it comes if you're not first born again. That word born again there is is a little bit vague. It could mean two things. It could mean to be born from above or to be born new. And I think the reason it's vague is because it means both. It means that there needs to be a new birth that happens inside of your heart, but it's the kind of new birth that can only come from above. Nicodemus, you need something to happen inside of you that you have never had happen, and that something cannot come from you. It has to come from above. And if this doesn't happen to you, he says, you're never gonna see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you will never be a part of the kingdom of God. And listen to this. With that one phrase, Jesus literally tore down their entire system of religion. That was based upon adherence to the law and strict obedience and constant submission. In every way, he tore down their entire system in that one statement by saying, you need something new to happen in you that you can't do. It has to come from above. And if that doesn't happen, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus does not understand. He says in verse 4, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Meaning he doesn't... He doesn't even have a category for this. Like nothing about this sounds familiar to him. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered. Now listen how close this verse is to verse three. And Jesus' first answer, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the only thing that's changed is this. First he said, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now he says something more. You must be born of the water and of spirit, which means he's helping us understand what born again means. He replaces born again with being born of water and spirit. So that's going to help us to understand what it means to be born again. So, So what does that mean? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean physical birth and spiritual birth. It does not mean that. There's lots of reasons we know that. The primary reason we know that is there is no evidence ever, no example in Greek literature previous to this where the idea of born of water has anything to do with physical birth. That that, that sounds familiar to us. That was not familiar to them. There wasn't a category for that. Jesus didn't mean that. But the real way we know that he didn't mean that is because in a few verses, what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna look at Nicodemus and say, how do you not know this? You're a teacher of Israel. Nicodemus, this this is basic stuff. Jesus was not coming up with anything new. He was giving something that was clarified in the Old Testament. We know that because he said, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. You should know this. How would he have known this? Because he should have read it in the Old Testament. So the question we have to ask is, where in the Old Testament does Jesus get this? And the answer is Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Jesus is literally pulling this statement in John 3 directly from Ezekiel 36. I wanna read a few verses of that to you. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Listen to this. Listen how familiar this is. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Listen, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Everything Jesus is saying, he is getting directly from Ezekiel 36. This is why Nicodemus should have known it. And that being the case, it shows us that this idea of being born of water means that you need to be internally cleansed from your sin. You see, what the Lord told Ezekiel is in the new covenant when Jesus comes, you're going to be clean with this water is going to cleanse you. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so what he says to Nicodemus is this, Nicodemus you have a religious exterior but you're a sinner in your heart and you need to be cleaned with the water of the purifying work of God this is what Ezekiel says I will clean you with this purifying water so it means to be internally cleaned and then he says you also have to be born of the spirit that means this radical new birth that makes you new from the inside out and so Nick, what Nicodemus should have known from Genesis 3, no less Ezekiel 36, and the thousand of other times it's communicated in the Old Testament, is one of the most basic understandings for us to ever understand the nature of salvation. Please hear me. And that is this. You are born spiritually dead. Dead. Ezekiel 36 says you have a heart of stone. A stone doesn't live a heart of stone, but what he says is this, when the spirit of God comes, that spirit of stone, that heart of stone is gonna be made into a heart of flesh. It's gonna to start to beat. Why? Because the spirit of God. So he's saying, Nicodemus, if you ever wanna see the kingdom of God, you need to be cleaned from the inside. And you also need to have a new heart given to you because you don't have one. It reminds us of John six sixty three, which says this, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. How do we get spiritual life? The spirit, the flesh can't give you a new heart. Ephesians chapter two says, this is not of yourself. It is a work of God so that no one can boast. You see, Nicodemus walked into Jesus with a lot of boasting and a lot of things to boast about with a massive spiritual resume. And Jesus looked at him and said, Nicodemus, none of that matters because what needs to happen is something inside of you that you can't make happen. The cleansing of the water, the new birth of the spirit of God. Nicodemus, you need something you don't have and you need something only God can give. That's why he says in verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What he's saying to Nicodemus is just because you were born in the flesh as a Jew does not mean you're a part of the people of God. The people of God, the true people of God are of those who have been born of God, those who have been born of the spirit of God, those who have believed in Jesus Christ. There are many Jewish people in all throughout the Old Testament who did not really believe in the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you were born of the flesh, so that brought you into a fleshly family. But if you ever wanna be a part of the true family of God, you have to be born of the spirit of God. And if you're not born of the spirit of God, you will never be in the family of God. You will not be in the kingdom of God. And every one of these statements just begin to dismantle everything that Nicodemus believed. Jesus saw the confusion on his face in verse 7. Do not marvel. So he's obviously marveling. He couldn't believe that. That I said to you, you must be born again. And then he uses an illustration about the spirit of God. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So he says, you know what the wind of the Spirit is like? It's mysterious and unseen and uncontrollable. There is a mystery to the wind, and you can see its effects, but you can't see it. And it's uncontrollable. You can't stop the wind or start the wind. You don't have the power to say wind start and wind stop. And what he says is, Nicodemus, that's what the Spirit of God is like. And that is a massive statement at the end of verse 8. So it is, this mysterious, unseen, uncontrollable spirit of God. That's how it is with everyone who's actually born of the spirit. This new birth is this mysterious work of God. Now Nicodemus is extremely confused. Look at verse nine. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? No category for this whatsoever. How can this be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Now, let me just say right here, Given the context in which this conversation is going and knowing what we know about Nicodemus and knowing his kind of subtle jab at Jesus when he called him a teacher of Israel, I believe Jesus responds in the exact same way with this little subtle jab back. So you don't think I'm a teacher of Israel, but you are a teacher of Israel and I know these things and you don't know these things. You, you call yourself a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? How do you, how do you not know that? And then, this is so good what Jesus does, for the third time, truly, truly, listen to me. Remember how Nicodemus came and said, well, we know that you're a teacher of Israel. We know these things. Well, Jesus does his own we for the first time. So he said, Nicodemus, you come to me kind of with the authority of your religious system and you all have talked and you say, here is what we believe about you. Well, Jesus says this, let me tell you what we speak of and what we know and what we have seen. And the we is the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that's the way to one up someone right there. Now you all have been talking about what you know. And Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, we, the father, the son, and the spirit, we speak what we know. And we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You see, that explains verse 13, where it says no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. So what it's saying is this, the one who is descended is the one who first was in heaven. Therefore, he knows what's going on in heaven. He has the authority of heaven. He speaks from heaven. And what he says is this, we know because we have seen. And what is true is that you have not received what God has given. That's John 1 11. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So he's saying, Nicodemus, you're one of those. You're one of those. I've come for you, and yet you do not receive me. But how do you not know these things? Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Say, Nicodemus, I've told you basic stuff, like basic Old Testament truth that the only one that's saved and the only one that's in the kingdom is not someone by natural birth, but someone by spiritual birth. I've told you basic earthly things and you don't believe me. So how are you gonna believe if I tell you real deep spiritual things? Nicodemus, you don't even have a basic understanding of the ways and the work of God. You want me to tell you greater heavenly things? No, you don't get it. So in this whole conversation, which feels a little bit combative and a little bit tense Because Nicodemus came with this kind of hard heart and really challenging Jesus, and Jesus goes right at him without him even asking a question, just says, this is what God says, and this is what we believe. And it feels tense, and it should feel tense. And then Jesus does the most beautiful thing. Ending this conversation in verses 14 and 15, he ends with just a simple gospel. And he does it in a way that Nicodemus was going to understand. You see, Jesus goes back to a little story in Numbers 21. The people of God were under the judgment of God because their hearts were hard and they grumbled against the Lord and they had rejected the Lord time and time again. And so as part of the judgment, God sent serpents among them and the serpents were biting them and they were dying. And so because of the judgment of God, they humbled themselves for a moment and pled with the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, here's what to do. Take a bronze serpent and hold it up. And anyone who looks at the bronze serpent held up will be saved from the serpents. You see, the symbolism is there. The serpents represent the judgment of God. And what he says is this, if you will take this and look at it, I will take away the judgment of God and I will spare your life. And so that's how the people were saved. And so he says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. He says, Nicodemus, you remember that story when Moses lifted up the serpent and people looked at it, were saved. He said, well, that was just a little picture of me. He says, I'm the one that has come to be lifted up because you're under the judgment of God. And he says, Nicodemus, you're just like the Old Testament people. You're hard hearted, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you don't have an eye on the kingdom. You're not submissive to the word of God. But God has provided a way out. But what needs to happen is I must be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, I take the judgment upon myself. And so all of the wrath and all of the judgment goes on me, if you will look to me. And that's what he says in verse 15, so that whoever believes may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you brought your incredible spiritual resume, but it doesn't do anything for you. You've got to look to me. If you wanna be saved, humble yourself enough to acknowledge you don't have what it takes, only I do, Jesus says. And you can lay every work that you've ever done aside and the only thing you really need is to humble yourself enough to acknowledge me. Just look to me. Look up to the one who has been raised and crucified for you. The point that he's trying to make is that if you wanna be saved, you must not look in You must look up. And as you look up, you get eternal life. Not just quantity of life, but quality of life is what that means. Eternal life is significant in John. It means that you will not only enter into an everlasting life, but an everlasting life in which the quality of it is abundant. It is the very life of Jesus. He said, Nicodemus, you're spiritually dead. Nicodemus, you don't have any spiritual life. Nicodemus, you know nothing about the kingdom of God. You don't have eternal life, but you can if you'll just look up. The sad reality is, is that Nicodemus only needed the one thing that he refused to give. is that humble acknowledgement that he did not have what he needed to be saved. So that's the story, here's the point I think God wants us to remember. It is this, and I'm gonna say it and then walk through it very quickly. Please get this, salvation. Is a supernatural spiritual sovereign and sufficient work of God please get this down this is the one point that God wants Nicodemus to understand and us to understand this morning salvation is a supernatural spiritual sovereign sufficient work of God what do I mean well first it's supernatural The reason it was so important for John to start his gospel by showing us that Jesus is the creator of heavens and earth is because Jesus has come to make a new creation in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Well, the necessity of being a new creation is because the old creation was dead. And so what Nicodemus could not understand is that he was spiritually dead. This is Genesis 3, and every part of Scripture throughout, we are born spiritually dead, and you cannot raise yourself from the dead. You need a miracle of God. Only God can bring the dead to life. I was thinking this week, thinking about surveys, what if we went around the room and I just said, listen... Have you ever experienced a real, I mean, bona fide New Testament, incredible, noticeable miracle of God in your life? Some of you say, well, my aunt, you know, she had a tumor and then they went in and it wasn't there. Or, you know, my child was saved or spared from this. And some of you might have some stories. But I think most of you would say, I don't know if I've ever experienced like a real Jesus, like New Testament, Old Testament miracle. Can I just say this? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have experienced the greatest miracle of all because God raised you from the dead. You were dead. You had no spiritual heartbeat. Your heart was like rock. It was a heart of stone. And now all of a sudden you have a love for God and a desire for God and a love for the people of God. That's a miracle of a supernatural miracle working God that did something in you that you could have never done yourself. This is why Ephesians 2.8 says, this is not of yourself, this is a gift of God. That's why 1 Peter 1.3, we read a minute ago said, he has caused us to be born again. Why? Because you can't make yourself born again. It is a supernatural work of God. It is a spiritual work of God, meaning flesh cannot give birth to this. No matter what you do, you can't bring yourself spiritual life. The spirit of God has to do it. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life, listen to this, the flesh is no help at all. And in order for you to have real spiritual life, the very spirit of God must work in you to bring life to your dead spirit. And like the wind, you don't see exactly when it happens or exactly when it comes, but you see the effect of it. And the effect of it is you start to have a heartbeat for God. You love him, you want him, you desire him, you wanna read his word, you wanna be with his people, you're convicted of sin. If there's none of that, then there's no spiritual life. It is a supernatural, spiritual, but it is a sovereign work of God. Listen carefully. It is a sovereign work of God. We get that from verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone, no exclusions, who is born of the spirit. Now I need you to look and listen carefully. If you're with me, say amen. Listen, I don't want you to confused here. I believe 100% 100% with every ounce of my being, I have given my life, my entire life, my entire ministry to two words in verses 15 and 16, whoever believes. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Who can be saved? Whoever believes, John three sixteen. so that whoever believes in him should not perish. Whoever believes, I believe anyone can be saved and whoever believes can be saved. And I spend my life preaching, if anyone wants to be saved, you can be saved today. But verse eight means something. And the spirit of God, which is the only thing that can bring new birth, kind of blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. It's mysterious. You can't control that. So there's this sovereign work of God that is being done in salvation. Now, let me tell you why that's so important right here. This is so good. When I I discovered this, I got up from my desk and did some kind of little dance. I jumped up and down. Listen to this. Jesus does not say this to the woman at the well in John 4. But he emphasizes it multiple times in John 3. Why? Because of this. Nicodemus had a very high view of man and a very low view of God. He was very high view of himself and all he had done and what it took for him to be saved and his confidence in the kingdom. But he thought nothing of God Now, the woman at the well had a high view of God and a low view of herself. So he didn't say that to her. But the reason he emphasized this to Nicodemus is because what he needed Nicodemus to have is a high view of God and a low view of himself. So over and over, he emphasizes the sovereignty of God and salvation, simply getting Nicodemus to understand, Nicodemus, all of the stuff you brought to me doesn't matter. Your, your view of yourself needs to go down and your view of God needs to go up and so he's giving him this high and majestic and sovereign view of God which was necessary for him to understand to be saved. You see, Jesus emphasizes different things at different times to different people. The woman at the well did not need to hear this but Nicodemus absolutely did that this is a sovereign work of God. But the final thing is it's a sufficient work of God. <laughs> it means that all, listen to me, all you have to do, is look to jesus and acknowledge that you're spiritually dead and if he doesn't give you life you're not going to get it and he died to take away your sins and to take away the wrath of god and if you will simply just look to jesus you'll be saved nicodemus brought his works and his wealth and his power and his position and his prestige and his knowledge and none of it got him closer to eternal life the only thing he needed to do is the one thing he was going to refuse to do and that's just to say jesus i need and that's all that Jesus requires. You acknowledge your need and you look to Jesus and say, I need you. So how do we respond to this? Two ways. Number one, I don't care what your spiritual resume looks like. I don't care How many classes you've attended or how faithful you've been at the church or how long you've been a member. If you have not humbled yourself and acknowledged that you don't have what it takes to be saved and look to Jesus, then you can't be saved. I think about that old EE question. You remember this. If you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should you get into heaven? What would you say? If your answer is anything other than you looked to Jesus to be saved, then you're not getting in. Because it's not about what you've done. You can't boast in this. It's about what God has done for you and your belief that Jesus' death is sufficient for you. So I'm pleading with you. If you have not done that, burn your spiritual resume and look at Jesus. And the second thing we do is this. We just rejoice. What an unbelievable thought that God has worked this miracle in us. You have received a miracle of God if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He worked a supernatural miracle in you and so we celebrate what he's done. We give glory and honor to the miracle working God because if it wasn't for his work, my heart would still be a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh. And so any life and any joy and any peace and any grace and any kindness I have ever experienced, it's because God has worked it in me for his glory. And that's, is a reason to celebrate. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.